At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we believe theological education should be confessional. Because of our desire to identify with what Christ has done in His Church throughout the centuries, we fully adhere to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. This standard keeps us accountable and preserves us from novelty. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. Welcome to the Modern Merriman Podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. Modern Merriman is a podcast on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We're hosting a weekly conversation on the law and the gospel so that church leaders and Christian lay people will rightly divide the word of truth. Hey, Tom, you're, you're back. Hey, brother. It's good to see you again. And this time, it's just you and me. No, no guests to, uh, to interfere with our conversation. <laughs> That's right. Back <laughs> at it again. That's right. But... Uh, I'm I'm glad, and I'm always looking forward to times where where we're able to discuss uh, these matters in light of our uh, common Savior and our commitment to to His Word. And so, uh, we want to spend uh, this episode and maybe another one looking at what's often called Two Kingdoms theology. There's a lot of discussion about it today, uh, a lot of debate, uh, and and so really during this episode, I think our our goal is simply to. Uh, maybe take more of a historical look at this whole idea of two kingdoms, right? And, and to try to have a better understanding of uh, of of what, when people are using this language, what's being referred to. Uh, so uh, with that in mind, uh, how, how would you uh, speak of or, or, or maybe talk through the historical development of uh, this, this whole idea of two kingdoms? Yeah, well, you know, in historical theology, it hasn't always been referred to as two kingdoms specifically, mm. um, but there has frequently been a contrast of two things. So there have been a series of twos uh, explicated throughout history. Um, so, for example, there were two cities. Uh, historical theologians spoke of two powers, two kingdoms, two swords, two governments. Mm. Uh, but I think we can trace the general development of two kingdoms doctrine in three phases of history. Okay. Uh, first, earlier on, Augustine identified the two kingdoms, if you want to call it that, two kingdoms with two cities. He, he identified the city of God and the city of man. Mm -hmm. And so if you remember, Augustine wrote The City of God, a book in which he defended Christians from the accusations of those in the Roman Empire, that Christians had destroyed Rome, that Rome was beginning to fall as Christianity was growing, and the Romans blamed it on the Christians for trying to turn Rome into a Christian city. Hmm. So Augustine responds in the city of God, and he says that Rome can never be the city of God. Rome is not God's city. He argued that the true city of God is the church only. Composed of baptized members who take the sacrament, the city of man is a mass of unbaptized pagans. And so the city of Rome was mixed with the church and the unchurched and could never be the transformed, uh, transformed into the city of God. Uh, so on Augustine's vision, the two cities are roughly correlated with the kingdom of light and darkness. And so you have the city of God, which is the Christian church, and then the city of God, which is, or, or the, the city of God, which is the Christian church and the city of man, which is a fallen world system and Rome 
um, is is a mixture. It's it's not the city of God. Would there have uh, historically, again, thinking in those days, with their uh, for generations at the time, uh, seeing you know the Roman Empire in in some ways as a a, a Christian uh, uh, Christian society or, or or you know a Christian uh, that that there could even be. Uh, those Christians who weren't properly uh, distinguishing here. Um, and so Augustine also is helping to, for, for them to clarify this relationship between, uh, you know, the city of God, as you say, and, and, and the city of man. And as Rome is, uh, in a sense, uh, falling, right, as, as a, as a mm-hmm. world empire, what does that mean for the church? Yeah, I think no doubt that there were different, you know, theologians who had different ideas of what is, uh, the true people of God, what is the mission of the church, and so on. And so his book, The City of God, would have clarified on both sides, but it, it was specifically aimed at uh, clearing Christians of the charge of destroying Rome, saying, mm. no, we've never, Rome isn't our city. The true city of God uh, is, is the church in, mm. a, in Augustine's understanding. So that that you might think of that as you're talking about three phases, that kind of first phase uh, with the uh, advancement of of Christianity in society and through the Roman Empire and the relationship there. But um, maybe more moving. What what? How do you see this second phase then uh, developing? Yeah, well, this uh, two kingdoms doctrine uh, saw further development in the time of the Protestant Reformation, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so here both. Luther and Calvin distinguished uh, between the inward kingdom of Christ, which is spiritual and saving, and the outward temporal jurisdiction. Now, some people think that this is just Luther's distinction, but if you read the Institutes, Calvin is saying the same thing, and I think the secondary literature supports this as well. Hmm. Calvin and Luther are on the same page on Two Kingdoms Doctrine. And what they were saying is that Christ saves us in the inward kingdom by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is our direct king to us personally through the word and by his spirit. And no human authority supersedes or interferes with Christ's saving kingdom. But Luther and Calvin would also say that Christ rules the family and the church and the civil sphere of this world, and he rules this temporal jurisdiction through human intermediaries. And so that's Mm. the real big distinction, is he rules one kingdom through men, and another kingdom he rules directly to your heart. And Mm. so the the temporal jurisdiction is the masked rule of Christ, where he's ruling through the mask of other human beings, uh, and those temporal rulers should follow his commandments as well. So it's not as though Jesus is king of one kingdom, but not the other. He's mm-hmm. king of both kingdoms, but one kingdom is only by the word through the spirit directly to the human person. And the other kingdom is through human authorities who are intermediaries. Mm-hmm. And so uh, these magisterial reformers were really dealing with a much different question than Augustine. Mm-hmm. So Luther and Calvin were, Instead of responding to this accusation that Christians were collapsing Rome, uh, Luther and Calvin were responding to Ro- to Roman Catholicism, which said you have to obey the church to be saved, mm. right? Salvation mm-hmm. comes through the sacraments, through the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church. Rome completely collapsed the kingdom of Christ into the visible church. 
Mm. You see? Mm-hmm. And so the reformed answer to the Roman Catholic sacerdotalism and sacralism was to say that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, through scripture alone. And no temporal authority can tell you otherwise mm. or interfere with that. Christ is your savior. You're not enslaved to temporal authorities. This was their point. Your obedience to family authorities, churchly authorities, and civil authorities does not contribute to your salvation in the spiritual kingdom. So this reform to kingdoms doctrine was really a doctrine about Christian liberty, mm-hmm. where, where we define Christian liberty as about salvation. So what is necessary to be saved? And I, and I'm free from the doctrines and commandments of men for salvation, um, which is well, then this, this surely would have had a number of implications then that right uh, came out as the Reformation continued and and uh, reform teaching uh, spread uh, throughout uh, the, you know, the Western world and beyond. Right. Oh, it had huge implications. And, you know, one of the main ones was that you're free to obey external authorities without submitting your conscience to them. Mm. So as long as human authorities don't require you to sin, you can do what they say without your conscience being bound by them. You can render outward obedience while holding convictions in your heart, and you're not compromising your salvation in doing mm. so. You can outwardly submit to authorities you disagree with, and your salvation's not in jeopardy. Mm. So, that, so in other words, the earthly authorities don't have to be pure or perfect. And this was one of the issues they were wrestling with, is with accusations of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, being impure, needing reformation, being wrong. You know, uh, am I compromising by participating ever at any level in that, you know, mm-hmm. in the early days of the Reformation and, the, and even beyond? So that was one implication is you can submit to temporal authority without compromising your salvation, even if they're wrong, as long as they're not causing you to sin. Hmm. But but another implication is you don't have to change earthly authorities for your salvation. Hmm. So your salvation doesn't depend on standing up to or overthrowing earthly authorities, transforming the temporal kingdom isn't part of your salvation, but your salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. And you're to keep his commandments out of gratitude, no matter how others respond or what effect it has. And so this this classically reformed two kingdoms doctrine was about guarding the gospel and the sole authority of Jesus to save and rule the human conscience. Uh, this reformed two kingdoms doctrine was all about Christian liberty and the sphere of salvation. Yeah, that's 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 very very helpful, and uh, we can continue to see this uh, working out. Then again, from Augustine uh, through the. Uh, Protestant Reformation, uh, but but what about uh, this this third phase of development that you were uh, mentioning earlier? Yeah, the the third understanding of two kingdoms arose as a development in the post Reformation period, mm-hmm. when the churches of the Reformation were working out the doctrine of the church. So you think of early Reformation, the issue front burner issue was salvation: how are we saved, justified by grace through faith. But the second phase of the Reformation was, okay, so what is the doctrine of the church? Mm -hmm. And this is where you have the splintering among Protestants. Um, But the independents and the Baptists disagreed with the magisterial Reformation in in tying the church and the state together. Mm -hmm. So the, the original, for example, the original Westminster Confession of Faith taught that it is the responsibility of the civil government to suppress and punish blasphemies and heresies. So that's Mm -hmm. 
early Presbyterians, English Presbyterians said the state has authority and responsibility to punish blasphemy and heresy. Hmm. The Anglicans said the same thing. The king has the power to coerce orthodoxy and right worship. And in fact, just as a point of history, many independents and Baptists suffered persecution under the, that understanding of the union of the church and the state. Hmm. You know, uh, independents and Baptists had to fight this, had to fight against hmm. this doctrine, which led to their persecution. They, they said, no, the state uh, does not have the power to coerce the church to do anything to, or, or rather in, in terms of its forms of worship or doctrine or confession, the Bible does not give the state authority to rule within the church or over her worship as far as the positive commandments uh, of the church are, co- are concerned. And so um, independence and Baptists developed another kind of two kingdoms theology. So this is, you see how each of the two kingdoms theology are really addressed to different problems. Well, here we come to the post-Reformation two kingdoms distinction and it is it it's addressed to the problem of um the independency the freedom of churches to approach god differently you know Mm. to worship according to their own consciences uh informed by the scriptures and so the the state should not force one particular perspective uh on on all of us and so um, the independents and the Baptists said that there are two spheres of authority, church and state, and the state does not have authority to regulate the doctrine of the church, to punish what it considers to be blasphemers or to coerce the worship of its citizens. Mm-hmm. So, um, and they also, they made a number of arguments here from scripture and theology, and here's some of them, and I'm, uh, I'm leaning on a summary of these historic arguments that David Van Drunen provides in his very good book, Politics After Christendom. Yeah, that should be helpful. Yeah, he summarizes these historic arguments that were made by the independents and the Baptists, uh, among others. But I'm mm. just going to give you about six of them here okay. very quickly. So these are arguments for the this distinction between the two kingdoms, the separation between church and state in terms of spheres of authority. So first, they said it is very evil for the government to try to coerce a person's conscience through external force, because Mm. that in no way advances the kingdom of God. It only turns people into hypocrites who then pretend to worship God, but actually they act in disobedience to him. Mm. So that's their first argument. A second one is they argued that the Old Testament theocracy was tied to the Mosaic Covenant, which is a distinct covenant with particular purposes, but that's now been abolished now that Christ has come. And they argue that the coercive nature of the Old Testament theocracy is not consistent with the spirit of gentleness found in Christ and in the gospel. So that was their second argument, is is this church-state union comes from a misunderstanding of the Old Covenant and its temporal a temporary nature to fulfill particular purposes, and it's not consistent with the purposes of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, third, the early Baptists and independents, they pointed out that for the first several hundred years, the leaders of the church rejected any notion of compulsion. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to the early church fathers, they did not believe that that people should be compelled by the state to be Christians or punished for false worship. Mm-hmm. That didn't arise until later. Uh, so that's a third argument they made. Fourth, they argue that outside the old, outside of Old Covenant Israel, 
The civil magistrates lack any biblical authorization to compel people to be members of a particular church or to worship. So the Bible doesn't authorize this. Um, they said that the jurisdiction of civil authorities is restricted to uh, outward matters of the body, meaning uh, physical transgressions, so murder, theft, and so on. But uh, that the civil magistrates, though they have power to punish external sins like that, uh, or crimes, the civil magistrate has no power over inward matters of the soul and the conscience. Hmm. So the civil magistrate is never, the, it's, it's an outside of its sphere of authority to regulate the human soul or conscience. Uh, fifth, they said that the civil government does not uh, require anyone to be an expert in the scriptures, but the cultures can and have flourished even when there was no uh, church present in that culture. So you can have a, a sound society with a, a basically a good government. And we have seen these throughout history based on law that does well to uphold a society and to impose order without anyone in that government being an expert in the scriptures. Mm. So that was a fifth argument that they made. Six, they said that if civil government is given the power of the sword to punish heretics, and coerce orthodox worship, then tons of problems will emerge in that society. The government will inevitably make martyrs out of heretics and wolves and amplify their voices doing great harm. Hmm. There will also be endless bitter and divisive battles as to what constitutes orthodoxy. And then whatever the outcome of that will be imposed by force and there'll be more bitter battles and controversies. And then the government coercion of the conscience will limit the freedom of theologians to study the scriptures since orthodoxy and right worship would be determined by the state. Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the arguments that um, the independents and early Baptist, as well as others made for the separation of the powers and the spheres of church and state and this, this two kingdoms doctrine that developed in the post-reformation period. Sure. And, and as uh, Baptists here uh, in, in this podcast, obviously tracing our own history to that uh, stream and that understanding then of uh, two kingdoms, uh, you know, one, one of the articles that, that I remember reading that that's been a huge influence on my thinking uh, it was written uh, several years ago by Ronald Baines, and um, um, don't—I uh, I assume you've read it as well. Uh, but oh yeah, but it's a wonderfully helpful uh, historical look at American Baptists, right? And and their understanding of then of of these of this separation of the two kingdoms. Absolutely, and in fact, uh, Ronald Baines explains that a key New Testament passage that defined the Baptist understanding of the separation of church and state was John 18, 36, mm -hmm. which says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over mm -hmm. to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And so, you know, the early Baptist argued that, that there was no notion of coercion physical outward coercion to advance or defend the kingdom of Christ, that the powers of the government were not to be employed, which is a power of what? What is the power of the government? It's force. It's, you know, it's outward coercion. Um, it's the power of the sword. And Jesus is denying that the power of the sword here should be used in any sense 
to advance his kingdom mm. or to defend or to support his kingdom. And that's a, a case made by the early Baptists. What, one example, Daniel Merrill, who's an early particular Baptist, he wrote this. He said, the kingdom which the God of heaven set up has never needed, so has never debased herself by soliciting the secular arm to enforce the mandates of the church. Of the civil authority, she asks no more than to have it stand out of her sunshine. <laughs> mm. That Caesar, in agreement with the ordinance of heaven, would look well to the management of Caesar's kingdom and leave it with a Lord to manage his. Mm. And so that was the spirit of the early Baptists who believed in a, in a separation of the spheres of authority of these, um, of these two kingdoms of the visible institutional church and the civil government. Mm. Um, another example, the Shaftesbury Baptist Association, which is in Vermont mm -hmm. or was in Vermont, said the kingdom of heaven is not defended by carnal weapons. And the kingdom of heaven forms no alliance with the kingdoms and states of this world, but is distinct from them. So this is a whole association of Baptist churches that affirmed this. This is, in other words, this is not a controversial doctrine. You didn't have some Baptists in this association that thought a different thing. They all just agreed mm. with this. This is what they said together. Uh, add to that the Philadelphia Association. So this is another early, large, uh, very influential Baptist association. Philadelphia Baptist Association wrote this, Christ's kingdom needs no support from union with the governments of this world. That the more distinctly the line is drawn between them, the better. Hmm. So there are very sharp you know, distinctions between uh, the formal uh, structure of the church and the, and the, and the state. Um, Isaac Backus, who's another early Baptist, he anticipated some of objections to this Baptist position. He knew what, what the detractor said in response to this. He said it was not that the unbelief or false worship of the citizenry was acceptable to God. So cultural unbelief, cultural false worship is not acceptable to God or to Baptists. But what Bacchus said was that God did not ordain the civil government as the means for addressing the unbelief and false worship of those outside the church. So it's a question of what is what has God ordained as the means to address false worship and unbelief? It's not the civil government, according to early Baptists. And here's what uh, Bacchus wrote. He said, the question between us, and he means between Baptists and Paedo-Baptists, is not whether it be the duty of citizens to trust Christ and worship him rightly, but it is whether that duty ought to be enforced by the sword or only by instruction, persuasion, and good example. Hmm. And then Bacchus went on and he said, the church is armed with light and truth to pull down the strongholds of iniquity and to gain souls to Christ and into his church to be governed by his rules therein and to again exclude such from their communion who will not be so governed while the state is armed with the sword to guard the peace and the civil rights of all persons and societies and to punish those who violate the same. And where these two kinds of governments and weapons which belong to them are well distinguished and improved according to the true nature and end of their institution, the effects are happy mm -hmm. and they do not at all interfere with each other. 
but where they have been confounded together, no tongue or pen can fully describe the mischiefs that have ensued of which the Holy Ghost gave early and plain warnings. And so there we see something of the development of the two kingdoms theology, which began with Augustine, was further developed in the magisterial reformers, but saw even further development in the post-Reformation period, and Baptists were often leading the way in that. Well, Tom, I really uh, appreciate that uh, historical overview. You know, so often when I uh, try to understand theological uh, controversies, debates, uh, looking back at uh, how these uh, views developed, how this uh, doctrine was uh, taught and, and refined uh, through history, the the controversies and concerns that that produced a lot of these provide so much uh, help then in uh, as we move more directly into what it means for us today. And uh, so I hope that everybody listening here was uh, encouraged and uh, blessed by that. And again, uh, if you haven't read, uh, well, uh, of course, Augustine's City of God or uh, Luther and Calvin on these things, uh, or some of the the Baptists. I mean, uh, again, Ronald Bain's article in the 2014 Journal for the Institute of Reform Baptist Studies is a wonderful resource and summary as well. So many, many good resources out there. But we want to thank everyone for uh, listening to the Modern Merriman podcast on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you'd like to know more about CBTS, please visit us online at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org. Tom, now that we've heard a little more about the history, or at least an overview of the development of two kingdoms, what would you say are some helpful resources to study this subject further? Yeah, well, there's a lot of resources. And for the uh, classical two cities theology of Augustine, there's nothing better than Augustine's own The City of God. It's an excellent resource. It's a weighty work, but I highly commend it if, if people haven't read that. Uh, also, for a good statement of the Magisterial Reformation's Two Kingdom Theology, I commend The Two Kingdoms by Bradford Littlejohn, which is a short but accurate read. Um, also, Matthew uh, Tuaninga has a massive academic volume out on the same subject titled Calvin's Political Theology and the Public Engagement of the Church, and that's excellent. Uh, but if, if we shift gears to the Baptist understanding of the two kingdoms of God, I would recommend an essay on the kingdom of God by, or rather an essay on the kingdom of Christ by Abraham Booth. Mm -hmm. And then there's, an, there's another historical work by Daniel Merrill mm -hmm. titled The Kingdom of God Distinguished from Babylon. And then there's also Isaac Backus's classic work, The Kingdom of God Described by His Word. And there's an excellent article by Ronald Baines in the Journal of the Institute of Reformed Baptist Study titled Separating God's Two Kingdoms. And so if you can get your hands on that, we may be able to have that available in the show notes if we can find it for you. Um, but that would be excellent. Um, also, for a really good treatment of God's rule over the societal sphere, which is very consistent with a Baptist understanding, uh, I would recommend David Van Drunen's Politics After Christendom. Now, I don't agree with every way in which he conceives of the, of the church in this volume, but his explanation of the responsibilities in the social sphere is very good.